Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, available at all your finest retailers. Between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience, and now, five years of podcasting experience. Oh, man, can you believe it? I wonder how many minds we've ruined in that time. And how many great beers we've inspired. Come on, give us some (laughs) credit. Okay, okay, okay. Now, I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and finding a way to check it out. On today's episode, we're, of course, going to start with your feedback. We're going to head to the pub and talk some beer news, because there's always beer news. We're going to take a quick visit to the library to talk about a couple of articles we've been reading uh, as of late, and then stop in the brewery to remind you that life is too short before we actually sit down with the folks behind a new brewery opening up in Anaheim called Radiant Beer. And the reason for this conversation is, well, one, I know all three of the people behind the company, and they're talking about reopening a brewery space that closed down. So what what does it take to open a brewery in a space where another one went out of business? And what does that do with your community? So that's going to be an interesting conversation, and one I think we're going to see more of uh, in the near future. And then, of course, we'll answer some of your questions, we'll give you a quick tip, and we'll get you on the way with something other than beer. But before any of that happens... Take a listen to these messages from the people who make the show possible. This episode is brought to you by Craftmeister and BTF IOTA 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, a group of more than 40,000 individuals from more than 70 countries who share a passion for brewing and enjoying great beer. Learn more at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. And as always, we're going to start off with a few announcements. Drew's got the first one. Yeah, so our main announcement is, if you didn't catch it, there was an episode last week of The Brew Files all about the Maltos Falcons Late Fair winners, where I break down three recipes that won Best of Show, First Runner-Up, and Second Runner-Up. So what exactly does it take to win Best of Show at one of these competitions? Go and listen. And uh, just to be sure, it takes a lot more than just a recipe, huh? Oh, yeah. Uh, It also takes a lot of luck. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, there's that too. So, And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA, Amazon, Brewers, Friends, or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It is a wonderful organization called World Central Kitchen, and they have an initiative called Chefs for America. The idea is that they're trying to help feed people who are in need by funding local restaurants to create food for them. So basically, this is an organization that can be working in your hometown. They have now provided over 
30 million meals in more than 400 cities. It's all uh, uh, the work of uh, Chef Jose Andres and his wife. It's a, a great organization. It helps people in need and... Uh, you know, the money that they get goes directly to local restaurants to help them out. And uh, as we all know, they can sure use it these days. So please throw us a few bucks that we can throw to them, and it helps everybody out. And that's, of course, going to lead us into our first piece of feedback. feedback. That's right. Our first piece of feedback comes from James Holland, uh, defending the honor of Guy Fieri. Um. <laughs> what? You know, and that's fine. And, and, you know, I don't think that you were as harsh on Guy as James kind of seems to feel like you were. But oh, no. let's let's talk about it for a minute. Right. So James wrote in, and I'm going to summarize some of this, but uh, James wrote in and said, Drew made a comment seemingly against Guy Fieri, saying he'd pass on Guy's food. I would just like to defend Guy by saying that although his restaurants might not be for everyone, Guy is not only a force for good with his pop-up kitchens for emergency workers, especially in California during wildfires, the premise of his most popular show, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Drives, Triple D for the fans, basically goes around the country to provide free advertising to mom-and-pop joints, putting out great food across the country. They often see at least 30, but up to 200% increase in business after his visits. These aren't chains, but real community eateries making a difference in the local communities. I know that you at least in some way lauded the guy for his efforts, but I wish people would stop crapping on him, because he looks dumb, his hair is stupid, his restaurant's got bad reviews, her, 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 isn't he a clown? How bad can he be? Well... James, I mean, in my defense, what I said was I don't want to eat his food. I, I do actually think that Guy Vieri does a lot of great work. I do think he gets clowned on too much. Uh, but, hey, the guy uh, the guy is a force for good. I agree. I just don't like his food. <laughs> well, and I haven't tried his food, so I don't know. Uh, some of the things don't look bad at all to me. But he kind of sets himself up for that. But, yeah, at any rate, we're not here to rag on Guy because he does some really great things. So uh, please accept our apology for something that we really didn't mean in the first place. And our second piece of feedback comes from Eric Junga about the floating dip tubes. You remember a couple episodes back, I asked people for their responses and uses for floating dip tubes. Have they had any good experiences? And Eric wrote in and he said, I just so happened to buy both the more beer and clear beer floating dip tubes a few weeks ago. And those are the two main computers. Uh, but not for the exact reason that you discussed. I don't really fret over clear beer. Whatever I get after finding with gelatin is good enough for me, though usually very clear. The reason I bought the dip tubes is because more beer started selling six-gallon torpedo kegs, kicking up my interest in the unitank concept for recipes with a quicker turnaround. Fermenting and serving a full five to five and a half gallon batch in a single keg sounds awfully convenient, and the floating dip tubes seem to be the obvious choice compared to cutting a normal dip tube to an arbitrary length. My first unit tank batch was cider, five gallons of Costco apple juice, by the way, good choice, fermented with Lollamans Vosquike uh, yeast at 90 degrees and then keg conditioned. It's delicious. This may be my new go-to cider yeast, just as crisp and clear as any other cider that I've made, but admittedly, not much of a test of the impact of serving from the fermenter. My first beer using the intake method is a brown ale that is currently keg conditioning and should be ready in another week. I plan to try a few familiar IPA and Saison recipes this way and see how it goes. At the very least, I expect that zero oxygen exposure will be a major plus. Any other potential impact, good or bad, sounds ripe for an experiment. And, Eric, I think that's actually a really good idea. I will caution people that, of course, if you're doing that, it really does mean that you 
aren't moving those kegs around a lot, right? Just, just what I was about to say, man. You do not want to move that keg once fermentation is done and you're starting to serve. Yeah, I mean, you let it settle a little bit, and wherever it is that you've let it settle, let it settle, settle there. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I, I like the idea. I mean, it, that's pretty clever, and, and I'd be curious, actually, to see, yeah, if the minimized oxygen exposure does anything for uh, IPA shelf life like that. And, you know, uh, there's another really good choice for cider yeast. Yeah, yeah, you've talked about it enough. <laughs> Speaking of which, uh, we're getting ready to, to make cider tomorrow. We're going to press apples and get it fermenting. There you go. And meanwhile, I'm preparing to go sun myself outside because it's going to be a bright sunny day here in Southern California. Oh, it's going to be sunny here, but 46 degrees, so. No, thank you. We're, we're going to be in the mid-70s. I hate you. <laughs> well, I also hate your well water, so there, we're even. <laughs> yeah, Let's right. go have a beer. Let's go have a beer. We've babbled long enough. We're going to move over to the Experimental Brewing Pub and have a couple beers, and we'll be right back. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my wort to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super-fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family farms to the world's finest brewers. With their new online store, YCH products are now available wherever brewers choose to shop. Browse the aisles of your local homebrew store or buy direct from YCH at shop.yakimachief.com. Also, experience the new YCH mobile solutions app, a free, sustainable alternative to the popular hop variety handbook with information on more than 120 hop varieties to help you make the best beer possible. Available now in the Apple Store or at Google Play. If you do business with any of our fine sponsors, please be sure to let them know that you heard about them here on the Experimental Brewing Podcast. Now, we are sitting here in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in cyberspace, and we're having a couple beers. And, uh, Drew, you're having a beer with some special meaning, huh? Yeah, so we touched on this in, I think, the last episode, but, you know, the homebrew community lost Mike McDowell uh, last month, and... Mike was, uh, uh, in addition to being a minch, he was also famous for his Janet's Brown Ale, which it was a recipe that he proudly shared with a lot of places and you know, brewed at a lot of breweries. And right now, a lot of breweries are actually 
making versions of the beer, including Russian River. And Russian River is putting it in cans and shipping it all around California. So next month's club meeting, which you guys will hear about on the Brew Files at one point, is going to be about brown ales. And we are sharing a whole buttload of Janet's Brown with everybody. So I happen to have the cans sitting in my chest freezer. And so I'm having one. And oh, it, man, that's great. And it's everything that you'd, that you'd want in sort of a bigger American brown ale, right? It's got that nice nice hop character along with the nice nutty toastiness that I want in a brown. It's just a it's just a damn fine beer. Yeah, man. Uh it it really is. Uh I I brewed a batch. Actually, I've only brewed one batch because it's so close to my no tie brown that I figure, hey, what the heck? I might as well just stay with my own recipe. Sure. Um, and for you, Mr. Man? I am uh, getting into the holiday mood with a Deschutes Jubal Ale. Now, we know that the recipe, well, maybe you don't know, the recipe does change a bit every year, uh, kind of like around the same general concept. Uh, in some ways, it could you could say that the, the basis of it was an English IPA, uh, but it's not exactly that either. So let me just kind of run it down. It's a 6.7% beer with 65 IBUs. It's full-bodied without being hard to drink. Uh, it is not overly sweet, but it's not bitter either despite the 65 ibus it's a really really a well balanced beer i know you hate that word but i said it anyway it's made with uh, pale crystal extra special carapils and roasted barley and it's got quite the hop complement bravo cascade delta u.s tetanang and east kent goldings now, one of the malts in there was uh, extra special, and I'm not real familiar with that, so I went and looked it up. It's a Brees malt that they say is kind of like a hybrid malt uh, using a special proprietary drum roasting process that develops both caramel and dark roasted flavors. Uh, the little spider graph shows it as being uh, kind of into the burnt sugar, dark toast, and coffee range is some of the most notable aspects of it. And I have to tell you, uh, the beer really has notes of all of those. I was discussing it with Rodney Kibsey, and Rodney mentioned he got kind of a molasses hit off of it. And that, I'm thinking, maybe is like the, the burnt sugar kind of flavors from the extra special malt. Mm-hmm. At, at any rate, it is just a delicious beer. If it's available in your area, go check some out, because I, it, it's really a nice, nice winter beer for you. Well, and it's funny because this is now two episodes in a row that we've mentioned the Brees Special Roast, or Extra Special, because uh, one of the late fair winners also used it. Now, did they use Special Roast or Extra Special? Because they think that they're two different things. Yeah, they used both. Oh, they did? Okay. Yeah, and the Extra Special is up there at like 130 Levabond, so it's a reasonably dark crystal. I mean, that's in the same area as Special B. I think Special B is actually more of a caramel malt, and uh, this one is not quite that over the top so yeah to me special bees always raisins yep it does have a bit of that uh, I'm, I'm getting ready to make a rye bock and i think i may just toss just just a touch of special bee into it yeah i, I find like a lot of uh starting humbers when they discover special bee they they go <laughs> overboard with it initially it's a very potent malt so it don't, you only need a little bit yeah exactly 
Okay, so let's uh, get on with things and talk about the beer life. Yeah, so you all will remember in the last episode, we talked about how Guinness was launching a non-alcoholic stout, right? And they're Guinness Zero. And no sooner did we record and publish that episode than immediately was followed in the news a story about Guinness having to recall cans of Zero in the UK, where it's the only place it's launched so far, because of uh, contamination issues. Uh, specifically, well, I mean, they didn't say what it was, but specifically like a, a biological contamination, making the beer potentially unsafe. If you remember from the episode where we talked to Athletic, this is actually a huge concern for making non-alcoholic beer. Regular alcoholic right. beer has, you know, pH pr- protections, alcohol protections from uh, things that can actually cause real harm. So... Any non-alcoholic beer has to be done with the utmost of care and a lot of attention paid to food safety. So if Guinness can screw it up, anybody can screw it up. And so <laughs> I, would, I would recommend people be very, very careful when you're starting to explore the world of non-alcoholic beer and make sure that you're buying from a brewery that you would actually trust to pay attention to that sort of stuff. A lot of people lately have been trying to make their own non-alcoholic beer at home by like uh, heating off the alcohol, which as we know, doesn't leave you with a non-alcoholic beer. Uh, it leaves you with a less alcoholic beer and one that tastes really, really weird. But I wonder if this same kind of thing could be an issue for them, too, or if it has something to do with uh, the way the big breweries make non-alcoholic beer. Because we obviously know they don't heat the alcohol off. No, and if, if I remember correctly from the articles when Guinness announced this, they were talking about doing a cold filtration process. Yeah, um, right. And you know, the and the old style way of doing it was basically uh boiling under a vacuum so you're boiling at a low temperature. But the other thing I think a lot of humbers underestimate is just how long you have to boil in order to remove alcohol from a solution. Um so it takes a, a lot longer than you think it's going to. But let's say they did it. Do you think that they might still be uh in danger of this kind of biological yeah. contamination? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's nothing that would stop like mold or other things from growing in there, and so. Well, yeah, you don't think the pH would be low enough from just a normal fermentation process that it would uh, take care of that? Let me just say right now that anybody listening out here, this is just kind of like idle speculation and conversation. So. Uh, yeah, no, I I wouldn't think so. I mean, like to that point, like athletic when we talk to them. You know, one of the things that they do is, I mean, they go through a whole fermentation process. Of course, they're using some sort of alternative fermenters that doesn't produce alcohol, or at least not a lot of alcohol. Uh, But even then, even though they get a pH drop, they still acidify the beer further to to gain additional protection. So, yeah, just normal fermentation pH drop isn't going to put you into a safe range. Okay, great. So, all right, folks, there you go. Uh, Let's uh, not try and make your own non-alcoholic beer unless you have some idea what you're doing and how to deal with things. And I'll give you a hint. Almost none of us have any idea what we're doing. (laughs) Good point. Very, very good point. Uh, And from the world of of non-alcoholic beer... Uh, we go to a great article that was that was written by uh, uh, Kate Bernot, who is one of my favorite beer writers, and she wrote in Good Beer Hunting about the fact that COVID-19 is apparently accelerating double IPA sales in the face of everybody's talking about no alcohol beers, low alcohol beers, lifestyle beers. <laughs> apparently, lots of you are out there just buying for the booze. <laughs> Very true. 
Yeah, so it's interesting to see, like, she talks about, you know, the different sales figures and uh, talking to Lagunitas, talking to Sierra Nevada, and a couple of other people about what's happening with their double IPA sales. And it's like almost 10%. So y'all are drinking. You know, and I was I was a little skeptical when I uh, I heard about this, and then I started reading the article, and the rationale behind it is that because people are drinking at home, they're drinking more strong beers, and I have to admit that that is exactly what's happening to me. Well, uh, if I'm you, out don't, some- you don't have to worry about driving home. Exactly, man. I was going to say, if I'm out someplace and they have a double IPA, I usually say to myself, boy, I would really like to try that, but you know, I can't drink like an eight and a half, nine percent beer and then drive home afterwards. Now I look in my refrigerator and I'm finding it stocked with all these beers that are in like the eight or nine percent range because I just, the only transportation I have to do is getting up off the couch and walking to the fridge for the next beer. There you go. And you just really need to train your dogs to handle that for you. <laughs> yeah, good luck. I, I'd be really curious if our listeners are also seeing the same sort of trend in their own fridges and kegs. So if you are, let us know, because I think it's kind of interesting. Because, again, it does fly in the face of all the things that people have been talking about in terms of, you know, people are going for lower alcohol. They're going for lifestyle. <laughs> I guess COVID well, I, think- I guess COVID is a lifestyle now. <laughs> Yeah, I guess so, at least for the time being. So, But yeah, if you've noticed that your own uh, tastes have been trending to stronger beers the last uh, six or eight months, let us know, uh, you know, and I think that there's still a place for session beers and all this because uh, as we all hang around home, we're all putting on more weight and drinking more, so maybe it's a good idea to have both on hand. All right, and so moving on from there, the next story is, well, it's a bit musical, and a bit odd. Uh, Run the Jewels, who's been a rap group with LP and Killer Mike for, I don't know, it's really been coming on strong, I think, for about the past five years. And they have become kind of a a brand, for, any, for lack of any other way of putting it, to the point where they've actually started working with other breweries, or with breweries, to release beers inspired by tracks on their album. And they've started doing this in conjunction with album launches. And so that's really cool. I mean, they're working with a lot of craft breweries around the country, making IPAs and all of this sorts of fun stuff. Um, but now they're actually getting to the point where they've hired somebody from a brewery to come in as a, an idea officer to start working towards the idea of actually having a Run the Jewels brewing operation. So they're... <laughs> Their first real big expanse out of the rap world or the hip-hop world is, well, clothing, but now also beer, and specifically craft beer. So it's very interesting to me to see where this is going to go. It also speaks to me how normalized craft beer is now in our world. Yeah, you know, everybody seems to be coming out with their own brand these days. Yep. So it'd be interesting to see. I know that they had a lot of uh, hazy IPAs, for instance, in their in their initial run that they were doing. So be curious to see what happens with the, the brewery as an idea. And if you haven't, go listen to some Run the Jewels. Don't listen to it around your kids, at least, at least unless you're not wearing headphones. Because, <laughs> hmm, uh, my, my grandmother would be shocked. <laughs> and probably the big story this week is Shelton Brothers, uh, one of the major importers of European and especially Belgian beers in the U.S., 
has shut down precipitously. Yeah, uh, their banks called in their loans. Uh, basically, they they had seen some reduction in their in their financials over the past couple of years because, of course, the rise of local craft breweries, the drink local movement, has kind of cut into some of that. And and the bank finally called in their uh, called in their loans and has basically forced them into bankruptcy. So pretty soon this is going to get liquidated and nobody knows what's going to happen. And part of the reason why I want to mention this is, one, if you've ever gotten into good Belgian beer or even, like, say, Norwegian beer that makes it over here or Italian beer, look at those labels. A lot of times they will say imported by Shelton Brothers in uh, Massachusetts. And they did a hell of a lot of work to sort of build up a good beer culture here in the U.S. and giving us an opportunity to, uh, to get educated. Now, of course, the Shelton Brothers do have a bit of a reputation in terms of um, being cutthroat. And so there are some people who are kind of gloating over their bankruptcy. But I do think it's a big loss. It's also not just a loss because of what they do in terms of the beers they import. They've also served as like the exclusive distributor for St. Somewhere Brewing Company, Anchorage Brewing Company, Jolly Pumpkin. You know, there's a lot of these, a lot of these more niche type breweries that part of the reason that they exist and part of the reason they've been able to really exist is the, uh, is the dis- distribution arm of Shelton Brothers being able to spread their beers out across a very, very wide territory. So we, we even have a couple of our craft breweries that are going to really feel this as a loss. Now, the real question is going to be, what's going to happen to those assets? <laughs> what, what assets? Well, the assets for like all the imp- importation rights. You know, I mean, that, that's, those are contracts. Those are, those are assets. So some, uh, somebody's going to come in and scoop it up. It'd be great if somebody scooped up the whole dang portfolio. But more than likely, what I can see the banks doing is sort of tranching it out and selling it off piecemeal. Yeah, it's going to be real interesting to see where this story goes, man, um, and see how it impacts our ability to actually get all the beers we love. Uh, I know that my heart fluttered when I read this because it's like, I can't get West Mall Triple anymore. Right. And the other thing is we lose the festival as well. And I don't think you've ever been to the festival, but I have. Um, and the festival was so named. It was the Shelton Brothers Festival, and it was a chance for you to be able to try some of the best beer. And they bounced it around from place to place. So when I went, it was here in L.A., and it was held in a beautiful warehouse down in San Pedro, uh, right next to where Browery West is now. And it was a great thing, and it was a fun time. But that's gone as well. It makes me a little sad. It's definitely the end of an era. It is an end of an era, and I'm going to be real curious, to, like I said, to see where it goes from here. Absolutely. And speaking of the end of an era, uh, everybody's favorite hipster American ma- macro brew brand, PBR, Paps Blue Ribbon. Well, uh, one of the things that people have always chided people about drinking PBR is that Paps doesn't even have a brewery anymore, right? And that's true. Paps hasn't had a brewery until now. Uh, they just agreed to terms with Miller Coors to buy a plant that Miller Coors was shutting down. Now, you guys may remember there was a lot of lawsuits going back and forth a couple of years ago because uh, Pabst had previously tried to buy a Miller plant in, I want to say, Eden River, North Carolina. I think it was in North, it was North Carolina. Yeah, um, I, I don't remember. I just remember that they tried to buy another one. Yeah, and Miller basically turned around to Pabst and said, okay, fine, but for $450 million. And then lawsuits jumping around everywhere because, you know, contracts. And 
but this plant in Irwindale, which is right off the 210 freeway, it's visible anytime that you're going east-west across the, the north part of L.A., uh, they, they were shutting it down, and they've sold it to PAPS for $150 million, and which brings PAPS actually back to Los Angeles, because one of the last breweries that PAPS had was also here in Los Angeles, just in downtown, and now it's an arts complex. It is uh, very interesting that PAPS is finally going to have their own brewery again after all these years. Yeah, and it's it'll be interesting to see what that does for like all the other legacy brands that the Paps company owns because I mean they own a ton of them, you know, like Hams yeah. and Schaefer's and Schlitz and all the all the grandpa Pearl, beer names. Do they own Pearl? I thought that they did. They might. I I, I don't know off the top of my head, but it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, because I know Paps is also branching out into other things like THC infused zero alcohol beers and that sort of stuff. So. Now they've got a place to play. <laughs> for whatever reason. There you go. All right. That's enough news. Time for us to get to the library. We're going to uh, stroll over to the library, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about some of the things we've read recently, so stick around. From the Malt Innovation Center, Great Western Malting has released two new products. The first is Biscuit Rye perfect for your next brewing or distilling experiment. It strikes a pleasant balance between toasted biscuit-forward flavors and classic rye spice. The second is Light Munich, a long-requested iteration of their popular traditional Munich, which brings some sweet malty complexity and a hint of copper color to your next recipe. Look for it at your local homebrew store and request it if they haven't stocked up yet. Why East invites you to the new season with our Hearth Private Collection release, featuring sophisticated, nuanced options for winter beers that connect you to the warmth of the holidays. 2000 Boudvar Lager produces a rich malt profile and subtle fruit undertones and finishes crisp and dry. 1581 Belgian Stout is ideal for any Belgian specialty ale. This strain creates moderate esters without significant phenolics or spiciness. And 3864 Canadian Belgian Ale complements the collection with banana and fruit esters, mild phenolics, and a hint of acidity. With their wide accommodation of temperature tolerance, brewing styles, and preferences, you can try these Y-East Originals now through the end of December. Find out more at yeastlab.com. And, well, we're in nice, comfy chairs. There's the musty smell of paper. And, well, little digital bits all flying all through the room. We must be in the library. We must be in the library. I almost got hit. (laughs) Well, hey, it's going to happen sometime. So I've got a couple of articles that we want to talk about. One new and one old. Uh, The first one is actually from VinePair, and it's all about sort of a, well, two new hop techniques. Because, of course, in this day and age, what do we need more of? 
More hop techniques. <laughs> That's right, man. You just cannot have enough hops or techniques for using them. Right. And so this article I thought was very interesting because the first one that it's talking about still not very practical from a homebrew's perspective, but it is kind of a cool thing. A high density hop charge, HDHC, which I guess is coming out of other half brewing over in New York. And then you want to talk a little bit about the process? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of vague, uh, but we'll, we'll give you what we know and hopefully somebody can uh, find out more about it. Basically, uh, it's involves the use of a liquid product called incognito that is a, it's, they call it a flowable hop flavoring liquid that reduces the amount of beer lost when brewers use pellets, cranking up the hop flavor. Um, we I, we kind of were discussing this, and about the closest we can really think of is it might be something in the vein of like a liquid cryo hop, but we have no idea how it's really made or anything like that. But it, it's used in conjunction with uh, with T90s, cryo hops, uh, other hops, and they say the three products are clean, bright, and powerful and have a flavor impact that is equivalent to 15 pounds of hops per barrel. Now, they don't tell you how much they're using that's equivalent to 15 pounds of hops per barrel. But really, this uh, liquid uh, used in conjunction with other hops is supposed to really, really bump up the hop flavor and aroma in the beer. Uh, they're excited about getting what's bigger and bolder, they said. So, you know, it's an interesting thing to keep your eyes out for. There are beers out there, uh, specifically from other half, uh, made with it. So, you know, if you can get a hold of some, you might want to give that beer a try and see if you can tell what this stuff does. Yeah, I mean, to me, it just reads like what this is. is the Incognito product is just a way to try and get more hop flavor, more hop aroma, more hop into a beer minus all the vegetation, right? And right. do it in a way that's very easy to use. And so this is really just, all right, let's combine this together and get more, more, more. Um, now, I know Incognito is not available at the homebrew level yet because the stuff's still in the hands of the professional brewers. And it's like $510 for a jug of this stuff. But I, if I read correctly, Yakima Valley Hops is actually getting ready to try and make a homebrew-sized packaging. So... It may come to the homebrew level before too long. Well, I don't know if I'd go as far as saying before too long, but it may come to the homebrew level eventually. Uh, in the meantime, we're really going to be keeping an eye out to try and learn more about it and what it is and how it does what it does. And the second technique discussed in the article actually kind of brings me uh, back to my childhood in the South and you know the idea of chewing tobacco, you know, just a pinch between the cheek and the gums, because uh, it's a technique called dip hopping. And, again, this is just speaking to people trying to find more ways to add hops in more places. But this one is, I mean, effectively, it looks like a longer, cooler Whirlpool hop edition that's held warm for a while and then fermented, or all the material is taken over to the uh, to the fermenter and, you know, fermented with, right? So biotransformation, that sort of good stuff. But, uh, Denny, walk them through it. Yeah, uh, 
So basically what it is is you uh, put hops into the whirlpool at 150 to 170 degrees and you leave them there for a few hours before chilling and pitching the yeast. Uh, apparently it showcases the, the linalool and geraniol from these hops and uh, it prevents the introduction of myrcene, which, uh, you know, is, is piney and dank. So you get the very bright citrusy uh, tropical characters out of the hops by doing this. Uh, it's a, a, a very interesting technique. Uh, and, you know, especially for linalool and geraniol, which are, I think, a couple of my favorite oils from hops, uh, that there's a company uh, in Fargo, uh, the Drecker Brewing Company, and they make a, uh, a beer called Toon Dip, which I just love the name on. Uh, the beer is described as dip hopped and double dry hopped double IPA with mosaic, citra, and El Dorado. I, I, I once almost accidentally did something kind of like this. Uh, I was chilled down too fast and went to put in my whirlpool hops and the beer was down to uh, 120 degrees. So I've kind of seen the effects. If you're doing it in the 150 to 170 range, there's a pretty good chance that uh, pasteurization will be taking place. So you don't really have to worry about uh, what's on the hops. But just as kind of an aside here, I've been involved in a number of discussions with homebrewers recently where uh, they are really, really concerned about taking Trube into the fermenter. They want to get absolutely clear, bright wort into the fermenter. That has never been an issue for me. And you can see from this that the whole idea is to get those dipped hops into the fermenter also. So for those of you who uh, are really freaked out by Trube in your fermenter, then this is not anything you're going to want to do. I thought what was interesting was, as I was reading about this technique, realized like when I'm doing no chill brewing, I'm kind of effectively doing this dip hopping when I do my IPAs this way. Because um, what I what I've always done, and people you can go back and listen to my experiences in the show, is I've always just taken the IPA wort straight into the cube, let it chill down until it hits about 170, and then hit those hops in there, seal the seal the container back up. And let it sit overnight in order to chill down, which means it's spending a good long time in that 170 to 150 range floating down. So, yeah, well, uh, you know, I think that, I've been dip hopping. <laughs> I think that that really proves that there are a number of ways that you can do things uh, in brewing. And as long as you get an end result that you like, they're all valid, right? Oh, yeah. But I mean, I always used to joke with people. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, so we're going to. We're going to hop the sparge water. We're going to hop the mash water. We're going to hop the boil kettle. You know, before we put anything in there, we're going to hop the boil kettle every minute for the entire length of the boil. I just wasn't thinking far enough ahead in terms of other places to put hops, apparently. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I, I think probably the next thing is uh, putting hops in your pants while you brew, right? Yeah, I'm not going there. <laughs> Me either, man. Let's move on, shall we? Yeah, I think this one is important. I mean, this is an older article, and it's not really so much about brewing, but it is about the importance of remembering some of the people who got us here in the in, in this world of brewing, and specifically, also kind of oddly hop-specific, because it was in Yakima, uh, a little bit of history about Burt Grant. For those of you who may not have heard, Burt Grant pretty much invented the modern brew pub idea that uh, that so many people are uh, are using these days. 
1982, he opened the first brew pub in the U.S., Yakima Brewing and Malting Company, uh, in where, of all places, Yakima, Washington, of course. Uh, he, uh, one of his favorite beers was his session beer that was called Grant's Celtic Ale. But he was also a, a bit of, uh, in, an irascible dude, uh, you know, he, uh, had his own ideas and, uh, liked to, to spout them, uh, like somebody else I know. Uh, so, uh, one of, one of his great sayings was, if you don't like my beer, drink something else. I make it for me. I don't make it for the masses, but a lot of people seem to like it as well. <laughs> so, you know, that was a great thing. Now, Bert all along had, said that beer is food, and he had lobbied to get nutritional information put on beer bottles. Uh, they didn't want to go with that. Uh, they said that uh, any references to a vitamin content in the advertising of malt beverages would mislead a substantial number of persons to believe that consumption of the product would produce curative or therapeutic effects. Yeah. So, okay. You might think beer is good for you. Yeah, right. And let's face it, as much as we all love beer, we all really know that beer is not good for you, no matter how you try to spin it. Uh, you know, beer has calories and alcohol, which, if consumed in a moderate way, at least is not too bad for you. Uh, but certainly uh, they were against trying to give the impression that beer is a health food. So on the 28th of May in 2013, the Alcohol and Tobacco Trade and Tax Bureau, the TTB, finally ruled that breweries, wineries, and distilleries can indeed put serving size, servings per container, calories, carbohydrates, protein, and fat per serving on their labels. Um, I'm, you know, I assume that beer is pretty much no fat most of the time, unless maybe a pastry stout or something like that that is a big chocolate cake put into it. Uh, but after all these years, Bert has finally won. And, uh, you know, like Drew said, this article has been around for a while, but now breweries can indeed put nutritional information on their labels, which brings up the question. Have you seen one? Uh, not on craft. Well, I mean, I've seen some of the craft beer stuff uh, talking like on the lighter beers, like 90 calories. But yeah, there was the whole big kerfuffle when uh, Bud Light started to put the calories on their labels. However, you'll notice that all those pastry stouts and imperial stouts and big double IPAs don't seem to be carrying any nutrition information <laughs> on them for some reason. Yeah, really, man. I would, I would hate to see the nutritional information on a, uh, say, 14% pastry stout. <laughs> just like you know drink this while you're on a treadmill yeah there you go uh yeah you get your your daily calories from this but nothing else all right <laughs> yeah. but i do i do think it's important that people remember that you know sometimes some of these rules that we have you know they're kind of long fought and long long battles in order to get there bert sadly didn't get to see this change uh but also at the same time remember bert grant he was a pretty cool dude yeah, indeed. Uh, so everybody, uh, lift one for Bert Grant and say thanks, Bert. Yeah. All right. I think it's time for us to go brew something. Yeah. Let's head over to the brewery and uh, talk about how life is too short. We're going to be back in just a minute. Mm-hmm. 
This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publisher of Historical Brewing Techniques, The Lost Art of Farmhouse Brewing. Purchase your copy of Historical Brewing Techniques at BrewersPublications.com. Nice and steamy in here from the kettle going, and uh, we are brewing and talking about brewing. So, Drew, you brewed anything interesting lately? Well, I did finally brew that uh, root shoot malt uh, saison that I was doing. We remember oh, one with the right. forager yeast. Sure, sure. So that that's bubbling away, and I think during this upcoming holiday week, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and tackle some additional beers because I need some IPA. I know you don't have that problem. I do. <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm well stocked on that. Yeah, so I need to do my, an IPA, and I think I want to make something nice and strong and Belgian-y. Oh, yeah. yeah. Maybe, maybe break out a break out a quad. Well, you know what, man? My uh, next two brews up are a uh, triple, the uh, the West Coast Mall, which I just absolutely love, and then uh, follow that up with something in the vein of a, of a Rochefort 8. So I think we're thinking in the same direction here. Yeah, why not? It's about that time. Yeah, really. So now I think though the crux of this discussion is really about well that time yeah about not drinking um, I you know I, I know that you guys have heard me mention many many times that I've been brewing on a grandfather G70 lately where you can make large batches I've been brewing 12 gallons at a time on it and dividing it into two six gallon batches the first brew I did that I just kind of wanted to get a handle on how everything worked was a Vienna lager been a long time since I'd done one. Uh, I decided that, uh, you know, in order to make it a little bit more appealing to my wife, I would kind of try and uh, make it just a touch more bitter than normally you would make a Vienna lager. But I, I really dick chimped it completely. Uh, <laughs> as I was putting together my water profile in brewing water, I hadn't noticed that way down at the bottom of the spreadsheet, there was a, a cell with a fairly hefty lactic acid addition in it. So I was sitting there adding baking soda and uh, pickling lime and stuff into the water profile, thinking to myself, boy, this is weird. I never need to do this. But I wasn't uh, aware enough to figure out why (laughs) that was happening, and it was all to counteract that lactic acid. (laughs) So the beer the beer was not terrible. Uh, It was probably drinkable. Uh, It was a little thinner bodied and maybe a little spritzier. That's, you know, and I don't mean in terms of carbonation, maybe just a, a little sharper tasting than, than I really would want it to be, uh, due to all the, the mineral additions. And I discovered that as I was drinking this beer or, or going for a beer, I would pull any other tap but the Vienna lager. And it got to the point where I had to face reality. I had to reclaim some space because I've been brewing these big batches. And I dumped like 11 of the 12 gallons of the Vienna lager, not because it was bad beer, but because I was 
not enjoying it. And this kind of goes back to what we were saying about beer not being a health food. If you're not enjoying what you're drinking, what's the point, right? It's uh, it's not health food. It's not going to uh, make you thinner or better looking except in your own head. Um, so if you don't like it, and especially if you're not drinking it, get rid of it. Move on. Go do something else that you want to do. Life is too short to drink bad or even mediocre beer, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, I mean, I've, I've certainly dumped a, a few kegs in my own time where, where it's just like, eh, I'm just kind of bored with this. And I know that there are people out there who will be screaming beer abuse, but come on, stop. Yeah, really, man. It's it's your beer. You can do what you want with it. I have heard from people who say, yeah, when I make a bad batch, I force myself to drink it as punishment. It's like, why the hell are you punishing yourself? You know, just get rid of it and move on and enjoy it. Well, I think that goes into the fact that I mean, we kind of talked about it before. There are some brewers out there that do kind of have a masochistic streak. Where, you know, you know, I have to work hard in order to make my beer, and if I screw up, I have to drink the beer. Guess what, folks? You can learn what went wrong with your beer in probably two glasses, or or, or one, or half of one. You know, yeah. uh, there's and you know the, this whole idea of punishing yourself because you made bad beer. Uh, I just don't understand whatsoever. Yeah, well, like I said, some people are masochists. Um, but no, I, I've, I've totally dumped beers that I just was kind of meh about. And the good thing is that by dumping that beer, I had space to put other new beers in. So, yeah, man, that's that's the way it was for me. I had uh, two kegs of this Vienna lager that I just was not drinking sitting in the uh, in the chest freezer. And I had just brewed uh, two kegs worth of uh, no-tie brown ale, which I just absolutely love. And I had no place to put them. So it's like, bye-bye, Vienna. Hello, no-tie brown. There you go. Now, of course, I'd be interested to hear from the listeners to see who out there has dumped beer. Not because it's bad, right? I think we all get the idea that, you know, bad beer is easy to dump and identify that idea. But have you ever dumped a beer that you were just like, about so let us know email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com because i like to hear these stories or if you're on the other side and you feel compelled to punish yourself by drinking bad beer write in and let us know why you do that i mean what what is it about it that uh, makes you want to drink something you don't really like <laughs> do you hate yourself that much <laughs> I was trying not to go there, man. <laughs> okay, enough of this philosophical discussion. Let's head over to the lounge and hear about some people who are opening a brewery in a brewery. We'll be right back. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. 
here in the lounge we're taking it easy uh i wish we could say that we're having beers but uh, at least i'm not yet but uh, drew had a chance recently to talk to some friends of his who are opening a new brewery in an old brewery yeah so here's the story i got three of three of my friends that you're going to hear from uh in just a couple of minutes who are all alumni of working at the brewery, right? So the B-R-U-E-R-Y in Placentia, California. And they've been around the beer industry now for quite a while. And they got an opportunity to start their own brewery, right? That's that's the dream. If you're, if you're working in the brewing world, at some point, you're sitting there going, someday, someday I'll have my own place. And they actually got, got a chance to be able to put together a brewery plan and whatnot. But here's why I'm talking to them. Because this is going to be a story I think we're going to see more and more of coming up. They are actually opening up a brewery in a now-closed craft brewery. So one brewery went out of business, and they bought the facility and are reopening in there. There are some unique challenges in that whole process. Things things just aren't the same as like, hey, I've got a brand new space to build out. There's now other additional challenges. So I'm sitting here, and I'm talking with the folks from Radiant Beer, all about the challenges of how to actually open up a brewery in a place that already existed as a brewery. So uh, sit back, grab yourself a beer, unless you're driving, and let's uh, listen to Drew talking to the people at Radiant. I have a trio of people today. It's not, not very often that we have more than one guest, but I figured that this was a special story. Uh, why don't we go ahead and... Uh, Go around the table and introduce yourselves. Jonas, you want to start? Yeah. So I'm Jonas Nomura. I'm the managing partner for Radiant Beer Company. Uh, we're working right now to get the doors open here as quickly as we can. There you go. Uh, and Mr. Bell. Yeah, I'm Andrew Bell. I'm the director of brewing operations here at Radiant Beer Company. Yeah. Pleasure to be on the show. Yeah, I've, I remember when you were just starting as a home brewer. Yeah, many, <laughs> quite a few years ago at this point, yeah, the old Maltos Falcons meetings. Oh, yeah. And last but not least, Cam Biz. <laughs> Hello, Chumby. Um, <laughs> yes, I am Cambria. I am our director of marketing and pretty things that we do and create at Radiant Beer Company. Thank you so much for <laughs> giving me an excuse to have to talk to you again. Oh, uh, well, you know, it's always a good thing to have an excuse to talk. Uh, <laughs> Especially with great nicknames like that. Oh, yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, for the listeners who haven't known, who haven't realized, uh, I, uh, I've known you all for a while. Uh, Cambria and I used to always uh, hang out and have lunch. So That's right. Lots of, lots of nicknames, lots of stories. I know we're not getting into them. With lots of other interesting characters that would also participate in lunch. Yes, indeed. All right, so let's get some story uh, established here, because you all have been in the beer industry for quite a while now, um, but you all share a common background, and that would be the brewery. The brewery. 
<laughs> I, brewery. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. Yes. How, yeah, I don't know how you get that UE sound in there, so it becomes very clear. So uh, yeah, the brewery in Placentia, California, founded by Patrick Rue. Um, let's go through real quick. What was what were all uh, you? What were you guys doing there, Jonas? Yeah. So I mean, my longish, uh, but but hopefully not too long story of getting into beer was uh, I was working as a paralegal in New York City and uh, realized I didn't want to go to law school and didn't want to continue down that path. So I had started homebrewing uh, during that time and really liked that concept. Uh, moved down to New Zealand and was lucky enough to get a job at a brew pub doing uh, assisting with making real ale down there and loved it and realized I wanted to keep pursuing that when I got back to the States and uh, was fortunate enough to get a job at Left Coast down in San Clemente. Mm-hmm. And while I was there, I met up with Patrick as he was just getting started with a brewery and uh, was fortunate enough to have him uh, offer me a job. Um, actually, at, well, just say I asked him for a job after a BG, BJCP exam at the brewery. Um, and came on and started helping out around the brew house. Uh, there's just you know a couple of us, Tyler and, and myself, really, and Patrick at that time. Um, started helping around with you know assistant brew packaging, all that stuff. Uh, and then over time, quickly became apparent there's going to be a need for someone to handle the distribution within the business, and started focusing on that. Ran the distribution program from you know a couple of markets up to uh, I think we we're at 32 at the the top of the the peak there. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you know, the brewery grew and exp- uh, just changed the, you know a little bit over time, uh, having the reserve society focus and and having additional tasting rooms and, and the DC space started taking on more operational roles as well. Mm-hmm. So it, that's interesting that you not only had a very far flung brewing career going all the way down to New Zealand to get started. <laughs> Um, but then you, you've, you've also really changed the, the focus. And so with Radiant, I'm assuming you, that's going to be your focus there as well, the, the operations side. Exactly, yep. Uh, yeah, sort of helping to help make things as smooth as possible for the rest of the team, hopefully. That's, uh, that, that's how I view my goal here is, yeah, getting the business, uh, you know, having the vision set and, and running with that and making sure that people are able capable of doing their great jobs. Great, and then uh, Andrew, like I like I said in our in our opener there, I've known you since you were a homebrewer, and yeah, somehow you exactly. decided somehow you decided to make the dumb mistake of turning your hobby into a career. Yeah, it seems to have worked out a little bit. Um, yeah, no, I mean as far as like a sort of full background, I started homebrewing before I turned twenty one. Um, and then after college, I moved back out to California, where I met you at, through the Maltos Falcons and probably some other other homebrew-related things, be it BJCP or whatever, um, of the track to go into an investment banking. Um, but, you know, 2008, 9, and 10 were not really great times to be in investment banking, so... Um, I can't imagine why. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, no, um, was homebrewing more frequently, entered two pro-am competitions, placed first in one of them and second in another, and then sort of, sort of got the bug of trying to do it professionally and was helping out at one of the breweries that I won the pro-am with and then saw the brewery posted for an entry-level packaging position, which was much closer to home. Mm-hmm. Um so started as a packager in 2012 and quickly moved 
to wood cellar, cellarman, brewer, um, and then since February 2014, I was um, promoted to experimental brewer, which basically managing the pilot system, working on all the recipe R&D, and then that role kind of shifted into a title called innovation manager, which had some of the same roles, but just managing a few more people and really guiding the innovation process of the brewery. Um, so, yeah, spent eight and a half years there. It was the most recent of us three to leave there. And, uh, yeah, excited excited about the future for both companies, honestly, but even more excited for our little venture here at Radiant. Yeah, well, I always thought of your title at uh, the brewery is really like you were the professional home brewer. Yeah, more or less. Yeah, you know, just trialing a bunch of things on a little three-barrel, you know, 93-gallon system. I think at our peak there, we were doing 165 or so beer, different beers and bottles and cans per year, and we did an additional like 150 plus off the pilot system. So coming up with coming up with like three 300 plus new recipes per year, it's uh, it's pretty fun. A little taxing, but pretty fun. Keeps you busy. Oh yeah, all, all those brain cells having to find uh, new things to do. All yeah, right. Exactly. And now, and then, last but not least, uh, Cambria, give us your 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 background in the world. Okay, I'll try to make it as linear as possible. Uh, my my background is more in the creative and uh, digital space. Actually, that's what my degree is in from USC Go Trojans. Shameless plug: We won the football game last weekend. Um, <laughs> but I. Uh, Graduated USC while pursuing multiple internships, actually simultaneously focused on digital media. And then one of those turned into a career at Warner Brothers, focusing on web design, had integration. And this is when social media was really not being used a whole lot by companies at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, But being in the new media department, that was a focus that we pursued pretty heavily. And I became fascinated with that. I loved it. I had my own website that I did on the side, just kind of focusing on food and beverage and travel and Los Angeles. And I really loved what was going on in craft beer, which was not a ton at the time, but that became kind of like this thing I was almost focusing on as like my beat. And so Ego Opry was a place I'd go see a lot, kept tabs on all the beer kind of developments that were going on, especially in LA and then broader. And I think that's around when I met you, Drew. Um, yeah. yeah, I think yeah. you were still at Warner's when we met, and you were you were doing your, your travel and food blog. That's right. Yes. I'm glad you remember things for me. Um, yeah, so I really enjoyed getting to know one of the series I did was focused on homebrewers in L.A. And I think now all those homebrewers are pro-brewers now. Um, but I think that's how we started crossing paths. Mm-hmm. And so in doing that on the side, um, this little place was kind of plotting an opening in L.A., um, kind of by the train tracks, and they needed somebody awesome to do some social media and marketing and some design projects and fun stuff like that. And so they they convinced me to leave my job at Warner Brothers to help launch a place called Golden Road Grain Company. So I did, and that was a blast. Um, But then after a little while there... There was a posting up at the brewery, the B-R-U-E-R-Y, in Placentia. And I saw that and thought that would be amazing to work there. I love their beer. I love what they've done. I've interviewed Patrick and Tyler and met that team. 
a couple times and writing about them, and they're just amazing. So I did apply to that job, and I got it. And so my focus was social media and marketing, um, which at that time, it was 2013 I started. There was tons to do. It was kind of before this um, pretty big curve of growth was about to hit at the brewery. And so that was also a blast, and we did a lot of great stuff there. Uh, my focus kind of shifted out of social media as our team grew, which was great. We had some great team members on the marketing team there. And then I started focusing a bit more on overarching brand as well as art distribution footprint. So I started working more closely with Jonas over time. Um, and as we were launching new markets, I'd go out there and represent our brand and talk about our marketing and how awesome we are. Um, and so that was where Jonas and I started working closely together. And then about, let's see, I was there almost five years. Uh, I took a job at another brewery. Mm -hmm. And I'll just fast forward and say, I'm happy to be getting the band back together. <laughs> now, uh, Radiant, I'm kind of back to pursuing my, one of the things I like the most about um, working in your marketing, which is the creative side and getting this brand developed, breathing life into it, you know, getting some color to it and creating the personality of what our brand will be and all the beautiful cultural tenants that'll surround it. Um, there's plenty of great stuff that we hope to do with this brand. And I know we have the right people in place to make that happen. So I think that was my linear explanation, I, right? I, I think that worked perfectly. So, <laughs> Let's actually talk about that then, because you guys are, I mean, launching a brewery is always a tricky thing, but you guys are launching a brewery during the middle of a global pandemic. That has to be a lot of fun. The best. The smartest decision ever, right? <laughs> <laughs> We're well, doing it. Well, so, so how did this, how did this come together? That's a, that's a great question. Um, yeah, so basically uh, so after my time at the brewery I, I decided to uh to separate and and go and work at uh, chapman crafted beer down in orange for uh, a couple of years um and as i was there i was introduced uh through a, a actually another co-worker of ours at the brewery uh to some folks who were interested in putting a brewery together uh and i had always wanted uh to be able to you know, create a, a project from scratch and be able to have a little bit more direct creative control over what that, that brew is going to look like and, and work with, uh, you know, great creative people who um, share that passion for, for creating something. Um, and we originally had looked at some other spaces that didn't quite work out. Uh, and Town Park Brewery, the, the space here in Anaheim uh, that we're, we're opening up in, is literally uh, a mile from my house, and it is directly, you know, across from the freeway on ramp that I would get on to drive over to Chapman Crafted every morning, and suddenly saw uh, that they had a police sign on the side of the building, um, and you know, just knowing that that brewery was down there, I had seen that they had closed down for you know a, a few months before that, uh, and wasn't really sure what was going to go on with the space. Uh, but figured since, you know, for the sign, I had to at least call and, and figure out what's going on. So I spoke with the, the broker over there and um, found out that the space was, you know, available to 
take over as a, a brewery space and started the, the process of, of getting the funding together through the group of investors uh, and started reaching out to people like uh, Andrew and Cambria, who I, I knew I wanted to have part of the team to create an amazing new brewery. So in other words, this was all just a clever plan to reduce your commute. That's entirely, you know, it, there's something about in Southern California that, that being 10 miles from your workplace is just too much. And so it needs to really be that, you know, within a mile. <laughs> I lo- That's already tagged on. Yeah. <laughs> Beer is so local, you don't have to commute for it. <laughs> I'll give you that one for free. Um, so, well, actually, so let's, uh, about that, I mean, this is also now a chance for you guys to get to do your own thing, right? I mean, because you've all been parts of established breweries, but not really uh, part of a lot of the launch activities, right? Exactly. Not me. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess Cambria has yeah, that, that's was right. there pretty early on. But um, no, I mean, I, I think part of the appeal to moving, I mean, the main appeal for me was getting to work again with Jonas and Cambria and kind of having, having, you know, sort of, how should I put this? Um, sort of the opportunity as you said to build up a brand from scratch and not have to worry about like is this to brewery style uh, or 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 to be honest i mean working with a much bigger team at an established brewery you present all these ideas that you're very fond of and you know it's not necessarily at the end of the day your decision what what beers what ideas get decide get you know Sorry, I'm sounding like a complete idiot. You, you're, you're presented these, you present these ideas, and you're not the one who's making the call on whether you move forward with them or not. And you know, going to a new startup brewery, you have opportunities to actually put your stamp on things. Yeah. So that's that's part of the appeal. That's really poorly worded, but that was part of the appeal. <laughs> yeah, I, I think for me, I mean, you know, I was the second employee at the brewery uh, and, you know, saw that grow over time and loved those early days where it was, you know, a couple of us just really doing kind of everything and, and um, you know, trying to trying to learn as we were going and, and create those things, uh, the, the systems and, and processes and and you know, launch plans and, and all that stuff. Um, but, you know, to Andrew's point, there, there always was sort of an overarching uh, vision that, that existed that, you know, I was certainly aligned with and, and happy to, to be a part of that, um, but didn't also have, you know, that level of, of control over. Uh, and so, yeah, having to ha- having the ability to start up a, a new brand and, and have, uh, you know, a more direct path to work with Andrew and Cambria and, and the investors that we have to help align that vision and um, make that the brand that we want to present to the public and, and create the beers that we want to drink and, and share with everybody else. Uh, you know, that, that being able to do that while again, taking something from a, a small infancy and, and growing it into, you know, hopefully a, a great thing for years to come. Sounds like a really fun way to, to, spend a few years there you go. at least uh you know keeps you occupied so <laughs> can i can i chime in on that one too sure um yes so i will definitely echo what andrew and jonah said um i've done a couple startup things in and outside of beer and yes the beer ones i wasn't the one driving the 
the crazy train necessarily. Um, when I came into the picture, some of the breweries though I have worked with, you know, they would be maybe a couple years in, but still be a bit in that startup mode. So there would be opportunities to really improve and build upon and help a brand evolve and grow. Um, but what's especially exciting and different about this project is, yes, it is brand new, fresh, but it's working with people I have worked with before, mm-hmm. and I kind of understand how they work, and there's this, not that it's not in other projects, but there is this mutual respect and understanding of um, our different areas of expertise and, and what we can expect of one another and how we can lean on one another, and that's something that's really fantastic and special in having this collective together making a brand new project in a space we've worked before. So I really am admiring that and that's fueling some really good stuff. Well, okay. And so let's talk because you have the brand focus since you have the brand focus, what is it that you're looking at as the brand and the message for radiant? Hold on. Let me get my documents out. I'll speak from the heart on this one, and I think other people will chime in too. Um, but we really are looking to be a beacon of brightness, and the timing couldn't be better. Obviously, we know what's happened this year, um, but the literal definition of radiant is one of them is sending out light, mm-hmm. and I love that because that's what we need right now. That's what we needed even before this year year happened. If you look at deeper into psychographics of just what generationally people are looking for, this next kind of generation that's coming up is in need of that so badly. They've been through so many different things that they've grown up through, um, unlike other generations before. And so this feeling of solace and comfort and just feeling good and positive in a space really resonates with what we're doing. And Radiant, that name, really speaks to that. So, So those are some of the, like, very overarching good feels about this brand that I'm seeing. Yeah. Um, we do want it to be a word that Jonas keeps coming back to that I think is great is having to be progressive, and I'll let him expand on that. Um, but that concept of setting out light, positivity, inclusiveness, um, you know, keeping it a bright spot is really what I want this brand to be doing and seeing, and, and keeping that positive energy going. Um, I'll let Jonas chime in on progressive thoughts because I think he says it very well in his Cornell background. (laughs) Uh, Thank you. Yeah, I I, I couldn't agree more with what Cambria is saying in in terms of, you know, one one of the best things about the beer community is is the fact that it is a real community uh, and, and you know, being able to be part of that uh, has been awesome and, and, you know, not being able to be part of it from it with a new creation uh, is really exciting. And, yeah, the thing that that I've always wanted to have with any brand that I'm associated with is uh, to, to Cambria's wording, it, it, sort of a a vibrant, um, positive, and and progressive uh, element to that, where people feel a connection to the brand um, and have that sense of togetherness brought to them, um, even if they're not a, a member of the you know the hardcore beer geek community. Um, 
we, we're, we're going to be making you know a d- good amount of styles that are going to definitely be appealing to those beer geeks. We're beer geeks ourselves, um, but we also want to be you know part of the fabric of the Anaheim community. We want to be a, a local spot for, for people to come and feel comfortable and, and enjoy beer, whether they are trading with people across the country or if they know nothing about beer except that it is uh, you know fizzy and has some alcohol and, and tastes good. Uh, we we want to be a be able to have that balance um, between being part of the craft beer community and being part of the Southern California community as well. Okay. And then Mr. Bell, how does, how does the beer that you guys going to, that you guys are putting together, how does that reflect the idea of radiant and progressive? And that's, that's a good question. Um, As far as, as far as like stylistically what we're going to be doing, a lot of our focus seems is, is going to be really on doing hoppy beers and lagers for the most part to start up. And I think having some, just having a very definite brightness to the way the beers are constructed kind of ties in with that name radiant. But um, yeah, I mean, we're trying to put a little bit of a unique stamp on our, on what we're doing here. Um, but yeah, as far as tying into the name, I don't know directly how how the recipes will relate to that. But as far as what we're doing, like looking to do stuff we like to drink, as Jones said, so a pretty heavy focus on hoppy beer of all types and um, turbidity levels, mm-hmm. uh, as well as, like I said, lagers, um, just having all come from the brewery and having a pretty deep appreciation for barrels. There, There is going to be some some big stouts going into bourbon barrels and probably some other strong beers. And then, uh, yeah, just sort of drinkable beers. We're talking about doing a, a wit beer that we might keep on year mm-hmm. round, maybe changing out some of the botanicals seasonally. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, well, I and kind of just trailed off on that, but yeah, <laughs> I can add something to that too. I think, um, when we're having some discussions together, you know, the three of us in a room talking about what kind of beers, going on the brewing schedule um of course andrew's an amazing brewer and can pull these out like nobody's business but when we talk about radiant and our brand and and what it's like when you're sitting on our patio having a beer it may be that you're having this really approachable easy drinking not overly cerebral beer that you're experiencing and having maybe in greater volume or you might be having something that is a snifter of a very complex difficult to make in sense of it's challenging to make because there's a lot of time invested in it as well as ingredients and expertise. Um, you could be having either of those beers in our space and both of those do bring you back to this connected community. Um, I think those of us talking right now, maybe people that will be listening have all experienced what it's like to have easy drinking beer amongst friends and family and what it's like to have the bottle share point out the crazy awesome stuff that's ridiculously advanced and really cool and no one can get. Those are both wonderful experiences that can be very positive and so we want to have the positive parts of both of those come together for us. And so the way we make those beers oops, sorry, the way we make those beers you know, we can approach that many ways and sometimes we're like sitting here talking do we want to get too much into the beer geekery side because we do love that, but also we like drinking beers by the pool sometimes and just taking it easy. So we're going to find a way to balance that, and I think that can come from our line planning we're doing together, 
um, and then providing that to Andrew as insight for how he gets his ideas and experimental and straightforward stuff going. Yeah, like like I was like I was saying, yeah, we we're planning on doing everything from the easy drinking simple to the very esoteric, but probably leaning a little bit more on off the bat beers we like to drink, but it it will run the full spectrum. Mm-hmm. Well, and having had your beers over the years, I I have full faith that you'll be able to pull that off. So, um <laughs> thanks. Let's uh, let's pivot to the, the something Jonas that you had mentioned having found this space. Because this is a little different than the usual opening a brewery story, right? You know, most of the time you talk to people, oh, you know, I was a home brewer, and then I found this warehouse space, and I started building up the, the brewery, et cetera, et cetera. You guys are actually taking over a now-defunct brewery, mm-hmm. and you had mentioned them earlier, Town Park. Um, and it's a, it's a different challenge. It's a, it's a different set of challenges, uh, although I suspect it's going to be a story we're going to be hearing more and more uh, here in the near future. But what are the sort of unique challenges that you have in terms of trying to reopen a space? Yeah, I I think that you're sadly very correct that there's going to be more opportunities for people to do projects like these in the the near future. Um, And and certainly, you know, we mentioned the starting up a business in the middle of COVID. Uh, Realistically, I don't think the space would have been available for us if it wasn't for that, not not in terms of the business closing down from COVID, but in terms of just having a lot of people looking eager mm-hmm. to snatch up a, a you know, a built out brewery space to start up with, mm-hmm. um, you know, if, if it weren't for, for the middle of a global pandemic. Um, yeah, there's definitely there, there's the nicety of you don't have to come into a, you know, open space and cut floor drains and add in a whole bunch of electrical and, you know, run necessarily a, a lot of plumbing. Uh, but there's also the uh, inherited um, relearning of, of why some things were done the way that they were or how they were done. Um, and then trying to uh, fix those, those problems, which I think is something that, you know, every mm-hmm. brewer who's ever built out a brewery has a million stories of if, if I went back, I would definitely, not have put the mill there i would i would not have you know run that over there i, I would have gone with a, a different floor drain or, or you know whatever there's, there's always those those things that you learn uh, as you start using that equipment um and we're having all of those at once <laughs> uh, <laughs> so so andrew can speak a little bit right right now literally today uh we have uh, several folks out in the back right now that are uh, installing our reverse osmosis uh filter and andrew can speak a little bit about some of the the fun stuff that we've found oh, with that process oh my goodness yeah uh, key tip to anyone who's starting a brewery use stainless for everything please <laughs> don't don't use I mean, it might look nice, but yeah, we're having to redo the vast majority of the water drops to to be compatible with the RO unit because almost all, actually, all the water piping in this brewery was running copper, mm. which is not compatible with RO. Obviously, um, there's there've been quite a few well, things where it's like uh, we we could we can get by on doing it with how it's set up, but there's a lot of stuff where where we've had to do quite a few fixes um, mm-hmm. and we're continuously finding more things almost every single day. Well, uh, of course. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, the, uh, the boiler condensate 
is an interesting. Uh, yeah, I was about to mention that. I was, <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting in our tasting room right now, which overlooks the brew house, and I'm seeing the boiler condensate return lines, which go up without any pump. So you expect the condensate and water to travel in an upward direction. I don't. I, we had someone, a boiler maintenance person, come out recently, and they, the guy, literally said, "Whoever designed." the build-out of this steam line should be shot. Whoa! <laughs> yep. That's not very radiant. No, it's, no. no, it's not. But that's... It, that wasn't us. That was this guy. Um, yeah. yeah, there's some other things. The, some of the tanks had some sloppy welds that needed to be fixed as well. Yeah. So, I, I think it, it's in all, the day... All, it's all the fun stuff. Yeah. 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 I, I think it's, you know, with any any new business, any new construction project, you're always going to have those things that you don't expect uh, or, you know, the, 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 the stuff that doesn't go quite right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we're, we're experiencing the same things um, as, you know, most new breweries. Uh, the the nice thing about that is that, yeah, we don't have that, you know, eight-month-plus uh, lead time that, you know, all, all the, con- the major construction of, Working mm-hmm. with the city and the permits and all that stuff is entails, uh, so it, it, it's good to keep that in mind. As, as, as frustrating as some of these things can be, as we come to them, uh, mm-hmm. it's nice to think of like, okay, well, but it really, the brewery is, is pretty built out, and so we we, yeah. we do have that that nice uh, pleasure afforded us. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the lead the lead time on getting any of this built out has been hugely hugely compressed uh, in in a good way. The fact that you know, I was still at the brewery at the end of September, and mm-hmm. we're we're going to be brewing our first batch of beer next week. is kind of mind blowing. Yeah, I always tell people that it's the average here in Southern California. I think it's eighteen months from the time that you usually put the money down on the lease for your space mm-hmm. to the time when the beer is actually pouring. And you guys are turning this around. It sounds like in what about three months? been a bit more than that uh but i mean yes in terms of real full-time compressed work that's about right yeah and Um, i also have to laugh uh, when you started mentioning the boiler because anybody who's ever dealt with any sort of boiler situation here in southern california knows that boilers are their own special hell here in southern california (laughs) yep (laughs) yes they are (laughs) anytime you get anywhere near the air quality uh, groups it's we are we are fortunate that it is uh, below permit requirements, so there 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 is a bright side on that. Um, it, it is it is appropriately sized boiler that is just below that threshold. So there we go. And, designed specifically for California, <laughs> I might add. Yep, uh, and not surprising at all. So the other question that I have is: I mean, you're mentioning all these little things that are having to go. I mean, I think what Town Park shut down back in March, like when the when the the lockdowns first really started. So I mean, it's been what six months since, since that brewery has been in operation or has had anything further. Are there any particular challenges with that? Like anything that you have to do or. Yeah. So as far as we can tell, and I'm not a hundred percent sure on this, but it looks like the last thing that was packaged out of here was actually last November. So yeah, a lot of the equipment has been sitting idle for a long time. We actually found that one of the tanks was still half full of seltzer, um, which is fine. Uh, but yeah, there's there's definitely a lot, be it the boiler, the glycol system. Um, I mean, the first thing that we're going to be doing next week is 
and I'm dreading this, but very happy to have some people from the brew house manufacturer on site, but we're going to be tearing apart and replacing all the gaskets on the heat exchanger, which oh. is hugely fun. Uh, but yeah, no, it, there is a little bit of trickiness to restarting a facility that I don't want to say was abandoned, but was shut down almost a year ago as far as the brewing side of things. And I'm pretty sure the people, when they were shutting it down, were not expecting it to be shut down for as long as it was. Right, because they were they were going to pivot to being a, a seltzer company, weren't they? That That's was their plan, yes. Yeah, um, which makes sense then why you'd find a tank half-filled with seltzer. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, well, and I, I also have to imagine that, I mean, deferred maintenance is always a pain in any sort of facility. But deferred maintenance, I think, becomes even worse when it's a, a facility that's sort of going moribund, you know, because maintenance is hard work, and people who people who see a business shutting down aren't necessarily going to be wanting to put all that work in. Mm-hmm. So I imagine you're finding some of that as well. Yes. <laughs> yeah. In a word, yes. <laughs> in, in, in all the words I'm allowed to say without making myself <laughs> legally actionable. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So now that that that's on the brewery side, but there is also the challenge that that you guys will face with, the, or that you are facing, with what do you do with sort of the leftover community impact, the vibe from the place that was there before? You know, like how do how do you how do you see it working, or what are you going to try and do to make it so that you know to your your point. Uh, that it becomes a local place that you kind of to be very Southern California about you sage out the, the bad vibes. <laughs> <laughs> that is very Southern California. Uh, so we have already had a sage ceremony that that's, that was the most important thing we did. Uh, <laughs> no, no. Um, yeah. I, I mean, the part of that comes down to, you know, rebranding um, what, uh, and, and, you know, we're sort of doing the basic redesign um, of the aesthetic elements that were, were put into the public spaces Um you know, the, it's interesting with the the vibe that they were going for. There's an element that does have it, its own sort of very classic uh, style, but it's also kind of a blank canvas for the space. You know, the walls are pretty much all white. Um, there's some elements that are just very, you know, yeah, classic and, and, and easy to sort of work off of and build off of into a more cohesive uh, aesthetic and, and brand design. Um, so that's, you know, something that, Cambria has been uh, doing an, an awesome job of, of putting some some concepts together, and, and we've been you know looking into to getting um, some folks to start executing that, that and getting that build out done for us. Well, exactly, yeah. It's I walked in that space and I was like, this is perfect because it's pretty much a for the most part it's a blank canvas. Um, there's a lot of white space, like Jonas mentioned, and the things that do need some updating to kind of let us morph into who we are becoming um, aren't too crazy on the aesthetic front. There's a lot of opportunity to use some of the outdoor space because there is a patio. We're going to expand that a little bit for our soft launch. Um, the indoor space, we have some really fun ideas and things to do with light. Um, that won't be as big of the focus right off the bat just because in COVID times, we're going to make sure the outdoor space is the focus. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
in that space, in addition to the white walls, there are a lot of windows that are not just the exterior windows, but also kind of interior windows that divide rooms and space and divide the brew house from the tap room. And so there's some fun stuff that can happen with refraction of light, the change of light throughout the day, um, depending which space you're in, I can see potential for some beautiful things we can do with that, whether it's using prisms or window film to kind of capture some more color and capture that change of light. Um, these are going to be things we do over phases because, like we mentioned, it's happening really fast that we're moving on all this stuff. Um, but I do see some great potential to make some more ambiance happen in there. And there are some ideas I have with some lighting in addition to the natural daylight using some kind of lighting schematics that I'm working through and, and putting together on a very fast timeline to make it more of a space that has a personality. Um, when it comes to your part of the question kind of about the community understanding that it is changing, mm -hmm. yeah, that's a great question. It's a definitely a big focus in beating the drum about our brand and spreading brand awareness. So that's a big, major focus for me right now is getting that message out. What I want is that 10 mile radius to know that we're changing brand, we're a new, new group of people in that space and know what our mission is and get them to come by and meet us and try our beers and experience the space and not just during the soft launch, but also over time as we evolve it. So that's a major, major focus for me right now is just getting that brand awareness out there, um, especially for the local community. It is more challenging now because, as we know, events are a no-no. Mm -hmm. don't want to compromise anyone's health and safety, so we are being very cautious about that. But events have always been a great way to really connect with people and get to know them. Um, beyond just a flyer or a social media posting. So we'll get to that when we can, when it's safe to do that. Mm -hmm. But until then, we're just going to navigate around that and, you know, pursue all the other channels that we can pursue. Yeah, I'll, I'll be really curious to see what you're going to do with that interior, because if I remember correctly, it's all, like, white subway tile and some yeah. odd light fixtures. There are some <laughs> light fixtures. Yeah, yeah. The style is a little bit, like... Train station. Yeah, I was, was, I was going to say subway station. It, it yep. felt very much yeah. like a New York subway station. Yeah, I've heard it was kind of inspired by, uh, I think, the Denver train station. So there are some light fixtures that are a little more, um, they remind me of my time working as a student in the philosophy library, I could say. <laughs> um, and, and the underbar area, as we're calling it, definitely looks like it, it could maybe play some music from the 1940s if you listen closely. And that's okay. It's just a different style than what we're going for. So... Those aren't those aren't too hairy and messy to change out. Mm -hmm. um, the white subway tile is definitely there in the restroom area, but the great thing is that's still pretty plain. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the different hallways that kind of wrap around everything, I think the layout's cool, but I can understand why the function side is a little bit tricky <laughs> for sure, um, because there are a lot of hallways that kind of wrap around, and then there's kind of this weird cubby at one of the entrances. But those are spaces I can use kind of for experiential art installations. And this is where I get really excited and amped and wish we had just infinite time because we could do some really cool stuff there and I would be the crazy lady in there with like actually installing it and making art projects and shining lights back and forth and making Andrew and Jonas do shadow dances so I can see what's working. Um, but we're on a tight timeline. So yeah, there, there are those subway tiles and kind of that a little more sterile look there, but then there's like a giant blank wall in the middle of all that. So we have an opportunity to put something there. 
And then where that weird cubby is, maybe it's weird, but that's where I see we could do some experiential stuff people can get excited about. So we have some options, like so a small mural could go here and there, some lighting treatments could go here and there. Um, so I think it, it's, it's a fun challenge to really get to tackle that space. Well, and Cambria, you will always be the crazy lady. That is, yes. That is literally your job. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That is the compliment of the year. Also, I think now that you've put the idea out there, I do think that there's going to have to be like a, a short video, a TikTok or something like that <laughs> of Andrew and Jonas shadow dancing. <laughs> I love it. Yes. We can make that happen. Um, yep. I will make Easy that enough. happen. And then no one will come visit us because we'll be like, stay away from her. Oh, that's not true. <laughs> Uh, um, yeah, Drew, Drew, on the, the question of, you know, more of that community side and, and, and getting people to, you know, know our brand and, and to, to reconnect with the, the space um, from the, the prior use, um, you know, that that's, I think, where a great advantage of me being a local uh, is of, of, you know, I have lived in this community for now 12, 13 years um, and, and, you know, do have a, a good context of, of what um you know some of the community groups are and, and definitely going to be reaching out to to those people and and um i think on the other side of it then it's what we're doing right now in terms of trying to you know get the message out that we are we're, we're new operators we're experienced operators we you know are people that, that know how to uh make really solid beer of a wide variety of styles well and I'm going to, I think I will have to come back and revisit on this question after you guys have been open for a bit. But right now, just gut reaction. Would you, if you were going to do this project again, would you want to start with a blank space? Or would you want, or, or are you happy having started with this space that you have now? I think that is also like to, to your point. That's a question that is going to be better answered in you know a year time. Um, but uh, I, I do think that having the opportunity to go into a space that is you know built out for this purpose has some really obvious advantages. That that um, even with those other unexpected uh, you know elements, it, it still is is going to be a, a, a better process. All right. All right. And so just to wrap things up, any anything else that you guys want to uh, tell people about? And then we'll get into the details about when they can actually come find you. Hmm. If they're uh, if not. Cambria, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah I, I think we covered it pretty good. All right. Cool. Yeah. All right. So uh, I guess the only other thing that then remains to be talked about is. I mean, you guys have all put out the impression there that, I mean, this is all under a tight time limit, which means that, you know, the beer is coming. It means people are going to be able to get the beer. So when are people going to be able to come by for a soft open on that uh, big patio in a Southern California winter? <laughs> I'm hesitant to say the date. <laughs> Side, sidebar, sidebar, unrecorded sidebar. Um, <laughs> so what we've been telling everyone so far is mid-December, mm -hmm. and that is what we are planning and working towards and intend to do. All right, so uh, uh, potential mid-December, they'll be able to go to the brewery, they'll be able to get beer at the brewery. What, uh, given that this is also, uh, as we've said before, COVID times, what's the plan for takeaway? As in beer to go? Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, we do plan to have beer to go. Um, so what we are intending to have in our launch 
is going to be 16-ounce cans and four-packs, special releases and limited supply for those cans. And then we will have crawlers that you can take to go with you as well. Um, we're working on quite a few styles to fill up the tap lines. Andrew can comment better on that reality, given the fun things he's encountering with getting the brew house recommissioned. Um, but that is the plan for it to go at this point. Um, also, unrecorded sidebar. Jonas, do you want to mention anything about kitchen space at this point? About kitchen? Yeah. Uh, yeah, we certainly can talk through um, the yeah, like sort of the, the that, that second phase of of plans. Okay. Yeah, that's probably not a bad idea. Okay. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll let you mention that second phase. Yeah, so we're working hard to to get the doors open here in uh, mid December, so we can have you know uh, some you know cans, sixteen ounce uh, four packs, and and thirty two ounce crawlers to beer to go, as well as you know beer on premise, uh, which for you know COVID periods, uh, beer on premise means food on premise as well. So uh, we'll be starting off with food trucks. We do down the line hope to have uh, a kitchen build out here as well. We want to you know be able to have that full experience for the consumer of, uh, you know, beer and food. I think it's something that, you know, being at the brewery or, or just being a, uh, a bit of a, a beer and, and food geek. Um, I, I love that the, the, the way that beer and food compare together and, 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 you know, just creating a more complete experience. Uh, and also one that's, you know, very family friendly in terms of having food for, for folks. Um, so we are hoping, you know, down the line to get, to get a kitchen put in here, uh, as well. Um, and expand out the the tasting room space that exists uh, in the facility, um, but that you know the expansion of the in, internal uh, tasting room obviously is going to be dependent on COVID sort of working its way through the system and and, and uh, being a, a forgotten era, so we can have we can fully welcome people inside to to try everything in our wonderful space. Awesome! Well, I can't wait to actually be able to try the beer. And to be to be able to see the space and what you guys have done to transform it, and uh, I think it goes without saying, good luck. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks. We can't wait like to have you come visit too. Unusual Absolutely. challenges that most people might not face, huh? Yeah, I mean, I don't think you you expect to find a half a tank of raspberry flavored seltzer. Uh, that you have to clean out. <laughs> or, Nobody expects half a tank of raspberry flavored seltzer. Uh, or, you know, what do I do with like all this copper pipe that's in here? And also the additional challenge uh, of, okay, one, COVID, but two, what do you do when you have a community that already has sort of a set of expectations about that place? And so I'll be really curious to see how they, how Cambria and company do. Andrew is a great brewer. And uh, so I, I trust that the beers will be f- fine and dandy. Uh, Cambria is brilliant at doing marketing, so I, I assume she's going to be out there working the community like nobody's business. But it is interesting. And again, I think it's going to be something that we're going to see more and more of. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's kind of inevitable the way the business is going, huh? Yeah. I, I mean, well, we've talked about it before that, hey, you know, uh, breweries are now kind of like your neighborhood pizza restaurant. You know, same idea here. They, they Pizza restaurants go go out of business and somebody else buys them. So we're going to start seeing this, and it's going to be interesting challenges. Yeah, you know, in a lot of ways, it's uh, kind of like it was back before Prohibition, too, when uh, every town had a couple little breweries of their own. Yep, exactly. All right, okay. well, hey, I think it's time for us to go do something else. 
<laughs> yeah, I think so too. Uh, we're going to get out of here and go to a little Q&A, a quick tip, something other, and wrap this baby up. We'll see you in a minute. Mechagrade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit mechagrade.com. Welcome back, everybody. We are getting ready to get out of here, but before we go, we have a few questions we want to answer. The first one is going to Drew, and it comes from Ben Sansonetti in Maine. Ben says, I'm seriously considering brewing up a version of the beet saison recipe that's posted on your website. And I have to say that when I read this, I thought it's the best saison recipe. (laughs) Okay. I see that the recipe says to steam, bake, boil the beets before adding them to the boil kettle. Is there any reason why I can't just peel them, cube them, and add them to the boil instead of boiling them separately and then adding? Thanks for your help, and I love the podcast. Okay, Drew, beat it. Stop. <laughs> Sorry, I had to. That's not even a dad joke. That's like a uh, an awful granddad joke. <laughs> All right, Hello? back to the question. <laughs> Um, so yeah, the reason I call for cooking the beets separately in that recipe is I, I would just prefer for things to go into the, into the kettle or into the mash tun already ready to go. Um, otherwise remember beets take a while, uh, to, to cook. So I would, uh, I'd be worried if they were in the boil that you're not getting all the goodness out of them that you should be. So that's the reason why I called for pre-cooking them, uh, I would say if you want to go ahead and give it a shot, go ahead and give it a shot. You know, see see what happens. But again, uh, if you if you do do that, I would actually yeah make sure you get them into a nice dice in order to make sure that you know that they're cooked through and you get everything out. Yeah, I mean, anytime you roast a vegetable, whether it's a, a beet, a carrot, a potato, whatever else in the oven, it really really intensifies the flavor and adds another layer of depth to it. So I think I would do it just for that reason. Mm-hmm. But if you don't do, if you don't want to do that, I, you, there won't be any negative effects to adding them to the kettles. Beets are almost all sugar, almost no starch. So, you know, you could, you could probably do that. Uh, it would probably be a slightly different character than if you roasted them first, but mm-hmm. what the heck, man? Give it a try. Yeah. And then report back. Yeah. Definitely report back. All right, and our second question, this one's a little bit of an involved question, so we're only doing two questions this week. Uh, And this one I'll let you tackle, Denny. So Joe Young from Nebraska says, what's the best way to come up with my own homebrew recipe? Start small and do it differently each time? 
My beer has always had the same weird aftertaste, no matter what kind of beer I make, and I haven't figured out why. How can I figure it out? Okay, kind of two <laughs> different questions there. So let's let's tackle the first one about doing your own recipe. What I found was very valuable for uh, myself when I was learning to develop recipes was taking a look at somebody else's recipe. Uh, if it looked like it might be tasty and interesting, then you brew that recipe exactly the way it's written. Don't be your old home brewer self and think that you can like substitute some things and change this and change that. Brew it exactly the way it's written the first time at least. Because you have to know what you're starting with, right? You have to know what your base is. Uh, it's kind of like the control in an experiment, right? Yeah, so you're, you're the you're the kind of guy who, when you go and you grab a recipe from a cookbook, you do the the recipe exactly the way it's written. The very first time I do. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and and cooking cooking is not really a, a great comparison here. Because when you cook, you can kind of taste as you go. So if you're adjusting from the original recipe, then you can tell how it's going and what to do. With beer, you can't do that. You know, you, you have to wait until it's done fermenting because there are so many processes in it that can affect the flavor. So brew that recipe exactly the first time. Sit down with a glass of it, taste it, and decide is this where I want to be? Uh, do I like this? Is there something about it that should change? Change one thing and one thing only, and then brew it again. And it's a repetitive process. Uh, you know, I know so many home brewers, including Mr. Beecham there, who have a really difficult time brewing the same recipe twice. But actually, that's the way that the recipe is going to teach you the most about brewing. Uh, so, you know, if you just change, say, one ingredient at a time, you will learn what that ingredient tastes like and how it affects the beer. If you change the process, you know, uh, go from like a, a single infusion mash to a step mash and leave everything else the same, you'll see what that process change does. So that's how I would approach it. Find recipes that look good to you. Uh, a lot of mine started off from Greg Noonan's Seven Barrels Brewery book. I don't believe it's in print anymore, but if you can find a, a copy of it, it's a really, really good basis for you to start experimenting on your own with and learning about recipes. The other question is a lot tougher. Uh, number one, Joe, you didn't tell us if you're brewing all grain or extract. Um, and you know, you have the same weird aftertaste, no matter what kind of beer you make, but you didn't really tell us what kind of weird aftertaste it was. My mind immediately goes to chlorophenols. Uh, you know, uh, if, if your water is chlorinated and you're not doing anything to get rid of it, that would give every single batch of beer you make a weird flavor. But, you know, man, that's that's about all I can tell you right now because I don't have enough info to work on. So let's just say that's it. And, uh, Joe, write in or give us a call at uh, 626-765-1-ALE and tell us more about this weird flavor and about your brewing process. And we'll see if we can uh, make up some other lies about it. Yeah, I mean, to me... I 
And when I read something like this about a weird aftertaste, the only thing I can think is it's got to be the water. You would you would think so, right? Although if Joe is brewing extract, he could have gotten into a, a batch of old stale extract, for instance. You know. Well, that like I said, that was my first thought too. So Joe, let us know, man. Give us more information. We can't be detectives unless we have a few clues to work with. Yeah, you got to give us a clue, man. And this week's quick tip actually kind of plays <laughs> into uh, some of what we were just talking about in the Q and A. Uh, it's don't overthink things. And Denny, why should we not overthink things? Yeah, um, you know this this uh, came about because I was in a discussion on Facebook where somebody asked. How do you monitor the temperature of your fermenter? And people came up with all these high-tech solutions and everything like that. And I said, I go out and I buy a $3 stick-on thermometer and stick it on there. The things are amazingly accurate, and it shows me exactly what the temp of the beer is. This guy came back and went, Wow, that's amazing. I, I'm fermenting in kegs, and I was going to, like, drill the keg and weld in a thermal well and put in a probe to get the temperature. But <laughs> it's like, why? Why would you do that when there is a simple, inexpensive solution, you know? Homebrewers really do like to overthink and overcomplicate things. And if that's where you get your joy in homebrewing, go right ahead. <laughs> but... Don't overlook the simple, inexpensive, effective solution uh, in your in your rush to overthink things and make it as difficult as possible. Uh, I know that a lot of people do that because uh, I mean you know put in the thermal well because that's what big breweries do. Yeah, that's true. But we're not big breweries. We have advantages that they don't have, and we should use those advantages to make our lives better and easier. Oh, boy, and use how. A, use a stick-on thermometer rather than a thermo well. You accomplish the same thing, a lot cheaper, but, I a lot mean, easier. Uh, and the other solution out there, I mean, if you want to be able to have a number that you can read, like digitally, or you know, do something for control, if you're already doing temperature-controlled fermentation, odds are pretty good that you are using an override thermostat, so you can just slap that probe right up against the keg and tape it to it, and there you go. Yeah, well, I, and that's, that's what I do, too, and I, I suggested that to the guy, but he was really just looking for a way to see what the temperature was, you know? All right, and now, of course, something other than beer, because there's more to life than beer. I know, it's hard to believe, but there is. And I'll kick it off, because I know you have one as well, Denny. And for me... Uh, it's been very well established here on the show that I am an old school nerd, science and fiction, uh, science fiction and fantasy type guy. Uh, I grew up during the golden age of the choose your own adventure novels. And every once in a while, somebody tries to do something with interactive fiction and well, they're usually kind of cute and whatever. Uh, the kind of the experiences that don't really stay with you. Uh, the problem with game writing a lot. Well, the other day I ran into this piece of interactive uh, fiction called Stay, by, written by somebody by the name of uh, E. Jade Lomax. And it's an online website that's written in the software that I'll talk about in a bit. But the whole story is like, you live in this fantasy world in this high, high castle city in a valley, and you go through the story, you're learning things and deciding what your life is going to be, and then one day you wake up to find out that there's a comet that is going to destroy the city. And you wake up after the comet hits, and you live your life again. 
And you go through these cycles and learning something new in each of these paths that you choose. You know, do I, do I want to focus on combat uh, school? Do I want to go and do magic school or, you know, learn about doing history? And each of these paths reveal different storylines, different things happen. And it's just really, really cool. I played through it at least 15 times and kept finding new things the whole time. And this community I'm part of that actually was the ones who gave me the link to this. We were all discussing the story and of the like 25 of us or so or 30 of us who were telling people about what, what it was that we had found, none of us had had the same story experience. And so it was just really, really cool and a lot of fun and a good way to spend an evening uh, entertaining yourself while also trying to puzzle out what's happening. And so after doing that experience, I discovered that the, this was written in a piece of software that's free uh, called Inkle Writer. And it's all designed to basically give you the ability to put together one of these interactive stories. And so I'm going to start playing around with this. I thought this was a lot of fun. It was a really good way to spend an evening, like I said. And again, that is Stay by E. Jade Lomax. And we'll have links in the show notes. Wow, th- that is really interesting, man. Oh, yeah. I, I highly recommend Yeah, you know, I'm not usually a, a fan of a lot of interactive fiction type stuff, but this one worked really well. That is really cool, man. Okay, I have a really quick tip here. If you have a Trader Joe's near you and you like to make pizza, go get some Trader Joe's pizza dough. It's really, really good, really easy. Uh, plain whole wheat or herby, uh, three different kinds. And for me, the best thing is you can just go buy a few packs of it and toss it in your freezer. Take it out of the freezer about three days ahead of when you want to use it and let it thaw out in the fridge. And man, you have a delicious, easy way to make pizza. Uh, I haven't made a pizza crust since I discovered this stuff because it's so good and so easy and, and so reliable and repeatable too. So yep. there you go. I, I have a, I have a ball of it sitting in my fridge right now. Yeah. Well, try, try stocking up and put them in the freezer, man. It's, it's a really, really good way to do it. Uh, I was a little skeptical at first, uh, but I've done it enough times now that it's worked every time. So. Trader Joe's pizza dough is always in my freezer. Yeah, and I never thought about freezing it, so yeah, I'll have to give that a shot. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, of course, it's good for other things besides pizzas too. Oh, yeah. You know, you want to oh, whip up some quick bread, breadsticks, any of that. Kind uh, of I've stuff. I've used it to make uh, calzones. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, that's that's just a pizza folded over. Well, it's a pizza pocket. Kinda. <laughs> uh, look, I, I, I'm still a firm believer in the idea that one of the best inventions that humanity ever came up with was the idea of wrapping something starchy around a f- nice filling. Yeah, especially cheese. Mm. All right, mm. let's get out of here. Okay. Yeah, I'm getting hungry. Thanks for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We hang out on a whole bunch of different uh, places on the Internet. Drew is on the Homebrewing subreddit and the Slack Homebrewing channel. I spend most of my time on the AHA discussion forum. You can also find me over on the brew house at the beer garden. Uh, and I'm on Facebook way, way too much. And if you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, we're used to that. You can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, 
I'm Denny at ExperimentalBrew.com, and he's Drew at ExperimentalBrew.com. And as I mentioned earlier, you can always give us a call or shoot us a text at 626-765-1AL. That's 626-765-1253. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.